From Psalm 130, beginning in verse 1, this is God's word. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray one more time. Our Father, thank you for this time, this space in our week, this space in our morning, when we get to turn our attention to your word, to this flawless book, this living record of your words and your works for us, and above all, your son Jesus, and we Father, we, just like the psalmist, as we come to your word, we're eager, we're watching like watchmen for what you will do and what you will say. And so please uh, give us attentive hearts, give us eager hearts, give us humble hearts as we come to your word. Please let it be you speaking this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So for the past uh, few weeks, we've been, we've been working through a section of the psalms called the Songs of Ascent. Psalms 120 through 134, there are 15 psalms that seem to have been at some point collected together. They all have the same title, A Song of Ascent. And what we, what we understand, the best we can understand, is that these were a hymn book used by the people of God in the Old Testament as they would go up three times a year to Jerusalem for the, the festivals that God had appointed, the times when all Israel would come together, they would gather in, in the place where God's dwelling was, where the temple was, they would gather together and they would remember what God had done and who he was for them. And these were the songs they would sing on the road to Jerusalem. These are the songs they would sing when they were there gathered together, the songs of ascent. They're called songs of ascent because Jerusalem was high in elevation, so you'd have to go up to Jerusalem, you would ascend. And as you would ascend, you would sing these songs. And so th these are songs of a people gathered together to worship God. And Psalm 130 might strike you as kind of a strange song to sing when you're going up to a festival, right? These festivals were times when, when you, were, you were off work, right? You were, you were traveling with your family. You were going, you were anticipating, you know, re reuniting with all the people you only saw when you were gathered together in Jerusalem. You'd think that these would be happy songs, holiday songs, but Psalm 130 doesn't sound like that at all. Look at the state of this poor psalmist's heart. Verse 1, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. He's in the depths. He's overwhelmed. He's utterly cast down. And this psalm shows us something that you, you almost certainly know if you've been a Christian for a while. The mere fact of your being gathered with God's people for worship doesn't mean at all that you're doing fine. The psalmist was not doing fine. He, he may have looked fine outwardly, but inwardly, he was drowning. 
In his heart, he was in utter despair, and he felt like he was going down into the depths of the ocean, never to rise again. And maybe you felt that. Maybe you feel that now. Maybe you came in this morning smiling and hugging people as you saw them. Maybe you sang our opening songs as though you don't have a care in the world. But inwardly, you're, just, you're full of cares. You're overwhelmed with cares. Maybe you don't know how you're going to make it. Maybe God seems so far away that prayer feels like just shouting from the bottom of the ocean. This psalm tells you that you are not alone. That the divinely inspired authors of scripture have been where you are. That God knows your situation so well that he wrote about it in his own words. There's a song here for you. This is the song of a drowning man who in his drowning found hope. And he wrote this down so we could experience what he experienced, so we could find the hope that he found. And the way he he points this hope to us is that he puts his words in our mouth. He gives us the words of this song that if we sing them, we're like going through his experience again. And so we're going to look at his story under three headings, a desperate situation, a dependable lifeline, and a durable hope. So first, a desperate situation. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. This is is the cry of a person who's going down into deep waters. He's desperate to be heard by the ears of the only one who can do anything for him. He is desperate to be heard by God. And we don't know exactly what he was going through, right? He's, he's written the psalm. He hasn't written it specifically in here. He's written the psalm generally enough that any of us can enter into it, that any of us can sing this song. But we don't know what he was going through, but we know that whatever it was, whatever was making him feel like he was sinking down, it had to do with his own sin. Okay, this is not like a lot of the psalms. There are lots of psalms in which the writer is crying out to God because he's been wronged. He's been mistreated. He's done what is right, and he's been slandered. He's been betrayed, and instead of taking revenge, he is crying out to God for justice, right? Psalm 26 starts that way. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Vindicate me. Give me justice. But is justice what this psalmist is seeking? Let your ears be attentive to my pleas for mercy, It's mercy he's seeking. Whatever situation he's in, it's at least partly of his own making. So he could be despairing over the consequences of sinful choices he made, right? We could could imagine this psalm on the lips of David, right? David, you remember, he, he took Bathsheba, another man's wife, and then when she became pregnant, he had her husband killed to cover it up. And then God said, because you have misused the sword, you have abused your power as king, I'm going to bring the sword against your family, from within your own family. And then David's son Absalom tried to kill him. He chased him out of Jerusalem. And so David the king is is out in the wilderness. And you can imagine him out there saying, I am in the depths. And I'm pleading for mercy. I don't want justice. I'm getting justice. I want mercy. I need help. Or you could, you could imagine, maybe even closer to the mark, you can think of Jonah, right? Remember that God said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to go to the, the city of your enemies and proclaim to them my judgment so that I can have mercy on them, so they can repent and turn to me. And Jonah said, there is no way 
I'm not gonna, I won't have any part of any plan that ends up well for my enemies. And Jonah gets on a boat and he goes the exact opposite direction. Right? And, but you can't run from God. And so God sends this storm. There's this awful storm. They're afraid the boat's going to sink. And, and Jonah tells the sailors, the only way that this boat is going to make it is if you throw me off of it into the sea. And so Jonah is literally going down into the depths because he had rebelled against God. But then as he sinks down, he cries out for mercy. And God sends that, that great fish right, to swallow him and save his life. Maybe you're in the depths today because of the consequences of your own sin. Maybe your job is in jeopardy because you cut corners and you got caught. Maybe your marriage is on life support because of your neglect or your unfaithfulness. Maybe you've, you've shared a secret and you've lost a lifelong friend. Now, not all desperate situations are caused by our sin, but some are. So maybe that's what the psalmist is experiencing. Or maybe outwardly his life is fine, but inwardly, He's just being eaten up with the guilt of his sin. He can't escape his conscience. He knows what he has done. He knows he's broken God's commands. He he knows God sees everything, right? Look at verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Right? What what are iniquities? That word in the Hebrew, it, it comes from the word that means to be bent. Iniquities are bentness. It, It pictures God's way as perfectly straight, as totally upright, and everything we do that's a little different from that or really different from that is bent. It's crooked. It's not the right way, right? Our iniquities are our sins, our deviations from God's perfection. And the psalmist says, God, if you deal with me according to my iniquities, if you deal with me according to my performance, I have no hope. I can't stand. And actually, no one can stand, right? So, Modern people don't like guilt. And actually, nobody likes guilt, right? It's a, it's a horrible feeling. But modern people, we don't, we don't even like the idea of guilt. The way we try to get away from guilty feelings is by just saying that there's, there's no such thing as guilt. There's no such thing as sin, that, that what's right or wrong, there's no universal standard of right or wrong. It's just whatever we, kind of our, our right and wrong is up to us. We get to decide, right? Something that might be might be wrong for you, could be right for me. So, so just, you just worry about yourself and don't judge me, right? This is the way we try to get away from guilt. But here's why that won't work. Deep down, we really do believe there are things that are wrong for everyone, right? Murder is wrong for everyone. Child abuse, exploiting the poor, lying, stealing. We think that it should be true for everyone that you shouldn't do those things. And if if everyone shouldn't do those things, there's, that means there's a way that everyone should live. There's a standard. There's a measuring stick. We know that there is. There's a universal law written on our hearts by our Creator. And we know, every one of us knows, we have not lived up to that standard. We're crooked. Last year, my family and I, we went to Disney World. And our then three-year-old really wanted to ride Splash Mountain. So we... We got the fast pass, we waited in the line, well, not very long because it's fast pass, but we, we got to the front and they had one of those, you must be this high to ride things, and, and I, I knew that Asher was going to be close, but I thought, well, he's so obviously mature for his age, and he's riding with a, grand, with a parent, and so maybe, maybe they'll just kind of let him through, but 
Sure enough, we got pulled aside. They stuck him up kind of under the sign, and he was just short enough that I could, I could fit my hand this way between his head and the sign, and they said, sorry, he can't ride. And so he got turned away. I still went on the ride because I wanted to go on Splash Mountain. Asher, I'm terrible. Um, Asher, he didn't measure up to Splash Mountain standard, and we don't measure up to God's. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Think if we were to play a recording of every word you've spoken behind someone's back, every time you've laughed at someone else's expense. Think if a book were published containing every one of your thoughts transcribed, every one of your desires listed. Think if, if, if a picture would produced of, of everything you've done when no one else is around, wouldn't you be overwhelmed with shame to be known so completely? But God already sees all of that. You have no secrets from him. Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And this is what the psalmist realizes. If God marks my iniquities, if God deals with me according to his standard, if I have to stand before him for judgment based on my record, I can't stand. I have no hope. I'm going to fail the test. I can't, I can't erase my record, and I can't do better. I can't change on my own. I've tried to change, and I always come back to the same old anger and lust and deception and lack of self-control, and that's why he's drowning He's experiencing just what David described in Psalm 38, verse 4. My iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. We don't fall a little short of God's standard. We're, we're not Asher, kind of a hand's breadth, shy of the line. There's a chasm between our performance and God's perfection. The psalmist isn't despair, in despair because he's worse than we are. He just sees the situation more clearly than we do. He cannot stand before the judgment of God. He's in despair. He's going down. He knows that he can't rescue himself. He knows that he needs a rope. And he's thrown one. In his desperate situation, he finds, secondly, a dependable lifeline. Look at verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So what rope does he grab? He grabs hold of the character of God. He says, if you were like this, I would have no hope. But you're not like this. You're like this. Right? You don't mark iniquities. Now we need to be careful that we understand what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God doesn't see our sin. Right? Remember Hebrews 4. We're all exposed before his holy eyes. He does see us. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care about sin. Psalm 7 verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. God cares about sin. It offends him in his righteousness. And this doesn't mean that God won't judge sin, that he just kind of lets everybody go free. No, he will judge sin. He does judge sin. But what the psalmist suddenly sees as he's sinking down in guilt is that the inclination of God's heart is not to find fault. The inclination of his heart is to forgive. His heart inclines to mercy. There's a place in the book of Exodus 
when uh, Moses asked God to show him his glory. He wants to see his glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will, I will declare before you my name, the Lord. And this is what he says. This is what God says his name is. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Does God clear the guilty? Does he overlook sin? No. He says, by no means. Part, part of his goodness is justice. But he doesn't say, I abound in justice. What does he abound in? He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's merciful and gracious. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. That's who he is. That's how he wants to be known. He doesn't clear the guilty. He says that he brings consequences for sin. He visits iniquity. But he, does, he, he forgives as well, right? He says, I, I visit iniquity to the third and the fourth generation, but I have steadfast love for thousands. His heart inclines to mercy. He forgives. He puts away our sin and doesn't deal with us according to it, right? He, he loves to do that. And some of you need to hear this. Some of you hear about forgiveness in church and you think, but not for me. Not for what I've done. Maybe for other people, but not for me. But listen, with God is forgiveness. Not only for people who commit little sins. David was a murderer and he found mercy. Jonah was eaten up with hatred and he found mercy. And they cried, they cried out to God and they found what the psalmist found, that God is merciful and gracious. He forgives. God's great desire for you is not that you would be punished. What does he want for you? It says, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. He wants to forgive you so that you will fear him. Now that's strange, isn't it? You would think that he would say, with you there is forgiveness that we would be free from fear. That, that forgiveness would take our fears away. But he doesn't. He says, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Forgiveness isn't the end of fear. It's the beginning of fear, of the fear of the Lord. So what, what is this fear? Now, what's, what's true of every kind of fear? Why do we hate being afraid? We hate being afraid because fear controls us, right? It keeps us from doing what we want to do. Fear of being rejected by people keeps you from being vulnerable with them and having close friendships, right? Fear of heights keeps you from, I don't, I don't know, skydiving. Not that that's a, a key to life, but fear controls us, right? You, you, you who are parents, you know what it's like to have a child who's afraid of the dark. You can't reason with that fear. You can't just take them to their room, flip the lights on, say, see, there's nothing here. Turn off the lights and back to bed, right? You can, you can reason with them all you want. You can threaten consequences if they don't go back to bed all they want, but they, they physically cannot get back in that room. They are controlled by their fear. They're paralyzed by it. Fear controls us. And the fear of God is like every other fear in that it controls us. It overpowers us. It rules us. But while every other kind of fear makes you a slave, the fear of God sets you free. When God is most important to you, you're not going to be held back from speaking about Jesus or 
or, or correcting someone because you're afraid of what they're going to think. Fearing God frees you from that other fear, right? When, you, when God is most important to you, you can give generously to the poor because you fear him more than you fear running out of money. You fear him more than you fear insecurity. The fear of God is not fear of punishment. Fear of punishment is driven out by forgiveness. It's not the fear a servant has of a cruel master that just at any moment he's going to lash out. It's the fear a child has of a good father. A child doesn't fear that his father is going to cast him away. He fears displeasing and grieving and dishonoring someone who loves him so well, who has done so much for him. When you see your guilt before God, you know your utter hopelessness, and then you encounter his compassion and his love and his forgiveness, then you're going to love him in return. And more than anything, more than any other fear, you'll want to honor and serve him. That's the fear of God. You were made to fear God, to have him at the center of your life, to have what he says and loves be more important to you than anything else. And it's forgiveness that restores our fear. So when the psalmist was, he was sinking down in his guilt, he was sinking down in despair, and suddenly he saw that with God there is forgiveness, and he grabs the line. He stops sinking. He sees hope. And he wants to share the hope he's found, right? Look at verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Find what I have found. Experience what I have experienced. He says, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Now, what is redemption? Redemption is rescue through payment. So at the time, if you got really deeply into debt, you couldn't pay it off, then you could, you could and, and often would have to sell yourself into slavery until your debt was paid. You would sell yourself as a slave of the one to whom you owed the debt. You would work it off, and then you could go free. But you could be redeemed from slavery. Someone could redeem you by paying your debt, by setting you free. It's a ransom. When you buy someone out of trouble, you're their redeemer. And the psalmist wants us to hope in the Lord, he says, because he is our redeemer. He says it twice. Verse 7, with him is plentiful redemption. Verse 8, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. But how does it make sense to speak of God as a redeemer? I mean, what, what price could God have to pay to set us free? God is God, right? Can't he just do what he wants? Can't he just save whoever he wants to save? Not from sin, because sin requires punishment. Remember, God is a righteous judge who feels indignation every day. He can't just let things go. He he by no means clears the guilty. So God, in his justice, must punish sin. But in his mercy, he loves to forgive. So how can he do both? How can he punish sin without punishing us? Only by paying a price. Only at great personal cost. When the Holy Spirit inspired the psalmist to write this song, the Spirit was pointing to something that the psalmist couldn't see. He was pointing ahead. Our sin creates a debt to God. We owe him justice. We owe him judgment. We deserve to be judged. But what the Spirit knew and the psalmist couldn't have guessed was that one day, God would take on human flesh and pay the debt of humanity himself. That he would rescue us from his judgment 
by bearing it himself. How did God redeem his people from all iniquity? Through his son, Jesus. In Jesus, all sin was punished so that for those who trust him, all could be forgiven. He went down into the depths of God's judgment so we could be rescued from it. If God should mark iniquities, none could stand, but with him is forgiveness, costly forgiveness. With him is plentiful redemption. How plentiful? He gave his son for you. There is no sin so heinous. There is no past so broken that all cannot be forgiven through the death of Jesus. Jesus is the lifeline God has thrown to the guilty, which is all of us. Have you grabbed hold by faith? Have you said, God, if you were to mark my sins, I'm hopeless. I can't stand. But in Christ, there is forgiveness enough for me. Have you done that? Whatever guilt you're carrying, whatever weight is dragging you down, this line will hold. It's infinitely dependable. So when the psalmist was thinking, he grabbed hold to the truth that God is our redeemer. And having grabbed that line, what came into his life? Finally, last point, a durable hope. Look at verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. You know what's so beautiful about this psalm? Just one of the things. There are so many psalms where the psalmist cries for help and God flies to his rescue and just fixes everything, right? He, he, he's in the pit, he cries out, God comes and he takes him out of the pit and sets him on the rock. And those psalms are encouraging, but this isn't one of them. In this psalm, he's still waiting, God still hasn't done all that he's promised to do. God hasn't flown to his rescue and fixed his whole life. In in one sense, nothing is different. And yet, in another sense, everything has changed. In verses 1 and 2, he's desperate. He's drowning. He's he's wondering if he's even being heard. And in verses verses 5 and 6, he's waiting. He's hopeful. He's confident. What transformed the psalmist wasn't a change in his circumstances. It was a new confidence in the goodness of God in his circumstances. He knows that God will act for him in love. Now, one of the things that can surprise people when they become a Christian is that God doesn't immediately fix everything. He doesn't immediately fix all your bad habits. He doesn't instantly repair broken relationships. He doesn't remove every consequence of past sins. What he does is he gives an unshakable hope that in time, all will be well. At the end of the Apostle Paul's life, when he was in prison, he he knew that he was soon to be executed by the Roman government. He wrote one last letter to his friend Timothy, 2 Timothy. And in that letter, he said that even though he was about to die, he could face the future with hope because, he said, I know whom I have believed. I haven't just believed in God. I know him. I know what he's like. And so I have unshakable confidence as I face the future. That's why the psalmist has hope. He doesn't have hope because he sees God fixing every part of his life, but because he knows whom he has believed. He knows that with God there is forgiveness. With God there is steadfast love. There is plentiful redemption. Because he knows God, he can wait for him. He waits in hope. 
And what fixes his hope? What does he focus on? Look at verse 5 again. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. The reason he knows whom he has believed is he knows his word. He knows what God has said about himself. He knows what God has promised. He knows what God has done in the past. He knows God's word. God's word is the food of faith. It's the strengthener of hope. The psalm is God's word. It's here for your hope, along with 149 other psalms and 65 other books. God's word gives hope. Now, Jason said, and you guys know that I'm on my way out, right? This is my last sermon at sunrise. I'll be here next Sunday, but Jason will be preaching. And I'm trusting God, and I'm trusting you, that sunrise will always be a community where God's word is trusted and studied and obeyed and proclaimed because it alone fixes our hope. Remember how John Newton said it in Amazing Grace, the Lord has promised good to me, his word, my hope secures. And having a secure hope, the psalmist is able to wait confidently and expectantly and eagerly. He says in verse 6 that he waits more than a watchman for the morning. He compares himself to a city watchman. So a watchman's job was to sit on the city walls and stay awake all night watching for enemies, right? Danger was way greater at night. In, in the daytime, in the light, you could see enemies coming from a long way off. If they were going to try to sneak up on you, it would be at night. And so you imagine these watchmen peering into the darkness, wishing that morning would come. When morning comes, everything's going to be all right. When morning comes, I can go my way. My work will be done. I'm, I'm watching for the morning. And he says that more than watchmen wait for the morning, he's waiting for the Lord. Those, those watchmen, they knew that the sun would rise, and that made them eager. They couldn't wait. And he's saying that he is like that. I know that God will come through for me. His word my hope secures, and I long for the day when he does. He's waiting with eager, confident hope. Now, I don't know what you're waiting for. You may carry deep shame over things that you did before you trusted Jesus or things you've done since you trusted Jesus, and you are waiting for your heart to grasp the reality of the forgiveness you have in Christ. Or you may feel trapped in the same old patterns of sin. You want to fear God, but you keep going back to the same stuff. You may be experiencing consequences of sin, like damaged relationships or crippling debt. You may be suffering from things that aren't your fault at all. They're just the reality of a fallen world. None of us is totally fixed. We're all waiting. We're all waiting to experience the fullness of our redemption. Right? Everyone who's trusted in Jesus is forgiven, but he died for more than just our forgiveness. He died to reconcile the whole creation to God, to make everything right again. Right? Paul tells us in Colossians 1, for in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God paid the price of his son's life to redeem not just us, but the whole creation to make all things new, and he will when Jesus comes. 
So we wait for the Lord. Our souls wait more than watchmen for the morning. Jesus will come. And if you know that he's your redeemer, if you know whom you have believed, then you can wait for him in hope. Let's pray. Father, we never want to get over the fact that with you there is forgiveness. That when we had no claim on your love, when we had done everything wrong, when we had run as far from you as we could, when we had no hope in ourselves, we found hope in you. With you there is forgiveness. With you there is redemption. That you are a God who has mercy. You are a God who put your son on the cross so that we could go free, so we could belong to you, so we could have a relationship with you as children to a father, so that we could feel absolutely secure in your love, so we could know that when Jesus comes that we will not face judgment, that we will be welcomed and embraced and restored, that we will enter into the joy of our master, into the home we were made for, into perfect creation, that we will be free from suffering, free from fear, free from sickness and death, that we will be what we are made to be. And we know that you have done that all through Christ, and we rejoice in it. With you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And so please help us, on the one hand, to embrace the depth of our forgiveness, the depth of our salvation. And embracing that, help us to live with you as our greatest joy, our greatest delight, our greatest fear. God, free us from guilt, free us from fear, and help us to live in hope. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.